0: Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I am your host, Nathan Birmingham. Today we are talking to Jeffrey Meacham. Jeff is a managing director of equity research, covering biotechnology and major pharmaceuticals in the U.S. for Bank of America. Jeff has been highly ranked in the Institutional Investor All America Research Poll for over ten years in the large cap biotechnology category, and more recently the major pharma category. Prior to Bank of America, he was a managing director at Barclays covering the U.S. biotech and pharma sectors, a managing director at J.P. Morgan covering the U.S. biotech sector, large and small to mid-cap, a role he had had for 10 years. Jeff began his career as an equity research analyst in 2000 at UBS. He and I started together with Jim Birchenoff, covering a number of sectors in healthcare, including small mid-cap biotech, life science tools, and small mid-cap medtech. He has a Ph.D. in molecular cell biology from the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and a BS in biology microbiology from the University of Georgia. Jeff has been one of the rare outspoken analysts who has written open letters to management teams of large biotech companies and has survived to tell the tale. He is clear in his position and is unapologetic for calling things as they are, always in the nicest way possible. Today we discuss the current market dynamics and look back at prior cycles to see whether there are learnings from them, most notably mechanisms to address the capital crunch for biotechs in need of capital. Welcome Jeff. Jeff, great to have you uh, on the podcast today. For our listeners, Jeff Meacham is Managing Director at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, covering biotech and healthcare. Um, Jeff, you know, markets, where are we? How are we thinking about the, the what's happening as we look at the XBI? Obviously, the XBI over the past month is up about 20%. There are groups that are reading the tea leaves here and think that this is indicator that we're moving from. Bear into bull territory, Afrobiotech, and we're going to come out the other end. What's your take on all of it?
1: Yeah, first, uh, Nathan, thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, for the most part, I would say that you know the, the investors that we talk to and kind of our fundamental view is, you know, the there's a gravitation to not not surprisingly to the bigger caps, uh, profitable, you know, sustainable businesses. Um, there's not quite yet a, um, you know, the basket approach of Smith Biotech um, is is not as attractive as it used to be, you know, two, three years ago. In fact, I mean, for the past 12 months, you know, the, the tape's been pretty bad. And, and I think most people expect that to continue at least until the end of the year. I mean, there is a, a kind of a growing optimism for 2023. Um, and I don't, you know, it's hard to figure out what's driving that. Maybe it's M and A. Maybe it's, you know, we're through enough rate hikes to where, you know, discount rates are, are now reasonable. Um, expectations reasonable, but I think that it's mostly, it's mostly a wait and, and see period, um, today and, and probably should be going into kind of deeper into the fall.
0: Well, it's it's been interesting, you know, and some of the other conversations I've been having with people, um, you know, both on the equity research side, in addition to pure banking side, it's been Q3. So this is conversation at the end of Q1, and to Q2. Looking at Q3, think that actually you might start to see some catalysts in the Q3 timeframe that will give us an indicator that actually run our way out. It's not clear to me those catalysts actually have come forward or that they actually, we've actually seen those catalysts uh, in the marketplace from you know, across our industry for positive news. I mean, we continue to, it looks like, have net negative news coming through. And now I'm hearing people talk about 2023. So, you know, are there things that you're looking at as we, now we've entered Q3, are there things within Q3 that you will look to that will give you an indicator of any rebound or any sort of hope um, for the rest of this year? Or is it effectively the assumption is, you know, both, in any of the for the investors you were talking to and the companies you're talking to that really were actually moving into sort of a twenty twenty three Q one sort of time frame at this point?
1: Yeah, it's 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 modest, I would say, for for Q three. There's a couple a couple of developments that have broader read through. For example, you know, Bayamarin's filing right for Rocktavian in the US. Um, I mean that was that's been delayed, but you know, if that if that is filed and accepted, um, I think that has a, a bit. You know, a mo- there's more confidence, right, in, in gene therapy, cell therapy, from a regulatory perspective. Um, same for CRISPR, although that is both of those are likely to be, you know, closer to the end of the year. Um, but you know, those are two sort of representative kind of you know, broader, broader read through from a, you know, from a regulatory perspective. Um, and I, I would say in general to the MA and a environment. Um, so there's obviously been a lot of, you know, a lot of chatter this year on seeing a step up in MA. and um, And that hasn't happened. And we talked to a ton of companies, um, beer caps about it. Um, and, and and everyone throws, throws out the FTC kind of oversight as being kind of the, the main reason why there hasn't been, and also, um, SMID biotechs being less willing sellers, um, and you know, I don't know if there if that's going to concentrate on Q3. But I would say by the end of the year, um, I do think that we'll get you know perhaps a cluster of deals. The thing that worries me though, Nat, is that if we get a cluster of deals in the in the space, the Smith Biotech space really rebounds. You know, companies may finance or some of the crossover investors, you know, may, you know, may punt. And so they're, you know, you, you want, you want sort of a backdrop where the Smith biotech is, is sustainably, you know, um, bottoming and then gaining some momentum, right. And, and M&A will be maybe a, a trade for a week or two weeks or a month, uh, but you want it to be more than that to, you know, and, and that's why I think people bias themselves to 2023 because it. You just sort of have a hard reset, and and by you know by then, obviously, we'll have the elections. Um, hopefully, we'll be through the most of the rate hikes.
0: Well, I think that that is one of the questions too, right? You know, as we look at the sort of inflation that seems to be out of control right now, there's a macro element within the market that we're still grappling with that that we're not seeing and it feels like we're not seeing an end to so on the flip side you know you've got to be talking to investors where they're sitting on a lot of capital so they're they're cooping in management fee on it um, there's going to be some pressure I assume to start to allocate that in you know, are they going to go to the large caps and kind of look at that as a safe haven for them or do you think that that ultimately there will be a tipping point this year where they're just going to step back in uh, to small to mid caps
1: yeah, it, it's it's interesting the past I would say, and you mentioned this up front, you know, look at the past month or so. Um, you know, when the the market, you know, has rallied a little bit, Smith Biotech has it looks like it has, you know, more like to it. Um, and I think that's kind of a signal that maybe technically, you know, we've hit a bottom. Um, you haven't seen the same sort of rebound and in, in other, you know, traditionally more, you know, um, volatile spaces like, you know, like technology and and, and the like. So, but um, that's the big question is that, you know, how, how, so how sustainable is, is kind of a rally, but most investors that we talk to really, whether they're generalists or specialists, if they want to be involved in, in therapeutics and have a sort of a new position, um, it's, it's mostly waiting out in larger caps. Uh, big pharma as well as you know big cap biotech and to some degree maybe mid cap biotech you know companies that have approved drugs it's the traditional defensive you know kind of element um and, and and these are not businesses that are terribly inflation sensitive um we've done ceo cfo calls with you know more than a dozen folks um among the you know pharmas and big cap biotechs and and almost all of them said you know they're they're very modest affected anything on you know, from inflation. So that, that is the, if that's the trade um, and that's probably likely to, to continue. The only element that's new, I um, mean, it just popped up in the past, you know, few weeks is, you know, if there is new drug pricing legislation, um, maybe that puts, you know, a, a bit of a speed bump, but I don't think that's going to change the, the bigger picture. I mean, drug pricing policy, as you know, has been you know an overhang for the space for going on several decades now.
0: Well, wow, right. I think that people are at this point just, um, you know, so desensitized to that, that um, it's hard to see if that really is going to have it. But I suppose maturity of the companies is another consideration. talk about M&A, it, it feels that the maturity for a lot of the small to mid caps is still on the earlier stage. So the actual value proposition to impact balance sheet and to impact pipeline for any acquirer, um, you know, is certainly challenged. How are you looking at it? Are there, do you, uh, you know, are you seeing that there is a population of small to mid caps out there that warrant an M&A discussion where it's actually going to have a meaningful impo- impact, uh, to the acquirer, or is it still that we're still early, early stage, uh, in the sort of pipeline evolution for many of these companies?
1: I think it's, I think it's the latter. I would say, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Um, when you look at say, uh, a major pharma you know of course they could buy a basket right of, of Smith biotech that are mostly tech platforms essentially um, but it's hard to you know the the return on that it may take you know eight years ten years right to see like a product that really starts to move the needle um, and there's a lot of effort to to roll that platform into you know a, a huge r and d budget you know you almost have to have an intention of you know uh, uh, of you know of implementing that you know kind of a, a when when it maybe it's not a natural fit but there are still some technologies that you know bigger cap companies still have a um a huge interest in so you know editing clearly is one um i think targeted protein degradation is is another that that's a, sort of a traditional small molecule skill set but the science behind it is pretty elegant um you know and and you know, gene therapy, cell therapy, broadly, it it does seem like, you know, companies are more willing, bigger caps are more willing to wait until you have, you know, a phase one or a phase two result. Um, At least that you can anchor valuation on a product and not have sort of a, you know, a black box, you know, valuation of just the tech platform. You know, it does, it does have to be driven by something. Um, If you look at the past few bigger deals, you know, the, Merck Acceleron or Pfizer Arena, um, and then the Pfizer proposed deal for for Biohaven. Um, most th- those are all driven, you know, by you know by individual products essentially, um, and and not really you know platforms. There's been a ton of, of you know of very small tuck-ins, but I think those are just access to technology and IP. Um, it's hard to to reconcile whether you know a big cap is going to you know billions of dollars behind you know a tech platform if it hasn't really been validated and and you brought this up too i mean we've had a lot of ipos that are preclinical you know um they're you know at best they're you know they've had some modest phase one data that's just not mature enough i think to to call it de-risk yet for uh for a bigger cap entity
0: well it feels also you know in cases where groups have stepped in on the on the earlier side you know uh Astellas and uh, the Audentes deal being you know, an example of it, where you then follow that clinical data post-acquisition and it doesn't necessarily play out as the acquirer had expected or hoped that it will play out. And I think this is, seems to be a consistent theme. So the, you know, the de-risking, it almost feels like we're moving into a zone now of phase two data really to sort of set that de-risking, which farmers are willing to pay premium on that, but understanding that they're getting a product and or a platform. That um, really has been de-risked as, from a human clinical standpoint. Yeah, you mentioned gene editing. You know, obviously, Verve this week just announced that they were going into um, that they uh, dosed their first patient. We've seen, you know, in a shift. And obviously, you know, I've talked about Intellia historically, right? Um, you know, th- we've seen a shift from the sort of standard cut, you know, indel formation to switch off now into what Verve obviously has been doing on the base editing side. Uh, for PCSK9, are, what are you seeing about that field? Is it a field that is yet to mature? Is it a field that is becoming overwhelmed somewhat with the with the pure volume of companies out there and differentiating between them is becoming more challenging? What's is you know what are you what do you see about that? And <clears throat> it's kind of different than the protein degradation side, right? Where it's actually a limited number of companies um, that really have been focused on it.
1: That's right, and and I would say editing in particular. We have a lot of next gen platforms, um, you know, so we follow Caribou, for example, uh, and they had some, some pretty good data, um, very recently, you know, but it's hard to, it's hard to say whether kind of a, an, an amendment to an, a core technology like CRISPR, Cas9, um, whether some sort of, uh, you know, additive technology is going to ultimately lead to, differentiated clinical data, right? And so um, a lot of companies are are looking at animal data and saying, you know, this is why we're, you know, a better, you know, a better platform. Um, You know, we, we also covered graphite and they they were talking about, you know, the potential for their platform to look differentiated versus, you know, versus CRISPRs, you know, and, and that may be the case, but I mean, right now when, when you look at the data for, you know, for CPX, 001, for CRISPR, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to poke holes in it, right? I mean, you have, you know, very, very durable, um, you know, responses, um, risk-benefit profiles, you know, and graphment looks good, the persistence. I mean, there it just checks a lot of boxes. And so um, I think you, you, you may be looking at, you know, um, maybe indications where companies haven't, that, that's where I would kind of go to is looking at indications that are not quite fully vetted. I mean, we we've talked to so many companies that are looking at sickle cell and beta thou And we talked to, I mean, we're talking several dozens um, that, you know, are targeting, you know, BCMA and, and, and CD19. Right. And so I get it that companies say, Oh, we want to, compare ourselves to the most robust data set out there and to give ourselves a benchmark, but investors kind of view all these things as the same. So uh, you don't have, you know, companies going after more niche orphan indications. Um, I think that would be, you know, a reasonable place to go for an editing platform. And it does seem like ideas are, are, are kind of cheap at this point in terms of new indications.
0: Well this is the problem, right? They're all to your point. They're all if you look at if you map out their pipelines right they're they're all good. Th- th- there's a limitation with respect to where they can actually deliver right that that really needs to be cracked open um there's a limitation from the number of indications frankly that they um that are available or open to them right now so sickle cell you know ttr pcsk 9 one at Dutrypsin, like the list is you know sort of single digit or low double digits and they're all chasing it so the differentiation i see this in immuno oncology somewhat is how do you differentiate yourself in that situation where you've got a new platform, um, but you know, it still does this, it, it still ultimately does something very similar to the other platforms that are out there. So, you know, how is your mousetrap better than everybody else's? Um, how do you figure that out? So when you're looking at a company and vetting it for, you know, covering it or, you know, in support of moving into an IPO, what is what is the process now that you're actually utilizing to actually figure out is this one really different? than everybody else and how do you get comfortable in that
1: yeah it's a great question i mean we we get this question uh, a, a good amount and, and when we um you know let's go back 12 months or so before you know the the bear market kind of uh um played out in smith biotech i mean you know the past couple years of of really robust you know early stage companies you know having successful ipos um looking at the enterprise value of these companies, it's really hard to say, you know, should one be valued at, you know, 500 million, should one be valued at 2 billion when both of them are preclinical and targeting the same indications. And so um, I think it's, to, to me, it's more about, you know, breadth of indications. You know, it's not, it's not that, um, you know, I would look to like, let's say CD19 or BCMA right in the, and the immuno-oncology, you know, space, um, that, uh, that you know, you, you want to sort of anchor around that, it's that, you know, where else could it go? And so, the more visibility on other indications, um, the better. But ultimately, though, it, it's about probability of success. I don't think anyone really, you know, imagines that, that you know, you're going to have several billion invested and only have 500 million in peak sales for, a, you know, for a technology. So. Um, trying to assess probability of success is, is to me like the most, you know, the most difficult thing. And I think a lot of investors just put a boilerplate number out there, but it's hard to to figure that out with, you know, with, uh, with precision. So, um, so I, there's not really a, a stock answer. I'm guessing, I think when you and I were, you know, growing up in the sell side world, um, we had a pretty standard, you know, methodology, right? I would just look to, Okay, when's a drug gonna launch? Let's look forward, you know, three to four years. What would sales be? um Discount that to today, um, and you know, at a reasonable rate. And there's your there's your valuation, and and it usually it's the rule of I call it like 70, 20, 10, right? Where it's 70% is one asset, 20% is the second asset, and 10% is like the tech platform. Like that just doesn't work anymore, and that hasn't worked for a long time, right? But um. It, that, that worked, you know, when when you had IPOs that were 200 to, you know, 300 million free money, but it kind of falls apart when it's 5 billion.
0: <laughs> well, also, you know, that was a period when, frankly, selling gene therapy uh, and never mind editing uh, really wasn't a, fa- a factor in the marketplace, right? You had a very limited number of uh, companies out there, money for which, frankly, don't even exist anymore. Introgen, you know, being an example of a GenVac and others these all went to the wayside um you know the the the, from reimbursement you know so you covered all the hcv you know what was going on the competitive landscape before that the 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 effect of approval launch and what we saw massive sort of revenue generation early on and then obviously as cure as as it became curative um you know that sort of sort of trickled away but one of the areas obviously was reimbursement around that the impact that it was actually going to have on the healthcare system when we think about you know things like um, you know moving from an SI as an example or an ASO into a one and done sort of approach what is your sense on reimbursement have you any thoughts about how this ultimately is going to get tackled so that we don't actually get this you know catastrophic uh, negative impact you know in the healthcare system
1: Yes, it, it's definitely evolved um, over the past, say, three to four years. I mean, you know, the the uh, Ovexis deal. I mean, you have, or, you know, for that, you know, it's gene therapy for SMA. I mean, it, it you know, the the excess looks to be pretty reasonable. Um, like I mentioned, you know, Roctavian earlier. I mean, you had um, ICER, which is a relatively new. Um, player and and kind of defining reimbursement they came out publicly and it said at least two million was reasonable for a a curative intent you know therapy like a you know like a rock and that may have you know i don't know seven eight years of of durability um the math works on these curative intent therapies um and i think payers are are definitely more cognizant of you know the of, of that exact math, right? When, when, when are we at parity? When does the cost benefit start to be favorable? Um, but it's like anything else. So when you look at, for example, in the UK, when you have the quality system, right? I mean, that's just never mm-hmm. has played out in the U S right. Because you never really know how long your benefit is. I mean, if you look at how long it took for the UK to reimburse, you know, Vertex's CF drugs more broadly um, yeah, they don't have a survival benefit per se, but best of luck trying to show it, right? I mean, it's it's obviously implied, but um, but you'll never have confidence in the you know the hard clinical endpoints going out 10, 15 years, and so that calculation it, it does seem like it needs to be updated a bit. Um, but I do think that most payers are savvier than that. They're not using old tools to look at these newer technologies. It does seem like um, the ball is moving. Um, and if we get more and more opportunities from, you know, from XSL or CTXO, one from CRISPR, Vertex, or, you know, or and I think that that would be, you know, we'll, we'll be on our way. That'll, that'll definitely pave a broader, you know, path, um, for many companies in the U S looking to the U S market, um, and to some degree, um, you know, Europe and Japan.
0: I was on a, I was on a panel uh, a few days ago, and this was this was a point of discussion that certainly came up. Um, the requirements for approval versus reimbursement. So the data being generated in clinical trials, we're starting to see it skew, you know, in different directions. I think the key question for for payers now, given a to the point you made earlier, the number of programs or the number of different modalities against targeting the same indication. How do you differentiate between them? And then B, as you look at the first modality coming in, where it may be a one and done, and then, but the efficacy may not be as great, are you going to pay when a second one comes through? So, you know, is it going to be really, you know, a single shot? Do you wait for it until it hits all the criteria that you need, which really is going to be overall safety tolerability, but durability, right, which is years in the coming? Um, or do you actually, will payers pay straight out of the gate um, and then- uh, effectively play the card on durability. And on a flip side to that, you look at Bluebird, right, and the issues that they had over in Europe. Um, you know, is there any, do we believe that that's going to, uh, in time, kind of flow through here to the U.S., uh, just given, given again, the sort of the, the, the challenges around the reimbursement and the cost of these drugs, and it's, it's a straight-up payment?
1: Yeah, I think most, most investors tend to give um, the U.S the benefit of the doubt that payers will ultimately, you know, pay for some of these Europe intent therapies. Um, and in Europe, there's still going to be a a lot more rigorous process, right. About, um, you know, getting broad reimbursement will require maybe a a little bit more analytics on the pharmacoeconomic on the cost benefit side of things. Um, and so there's not a, there's maybe it just takes, you know, an extra couple of years, but I do feel like it's, a, it's a matter of when, not if, um, the EMA, you know, and, and all the reimbursement country by country, the reimbursement authorities get that. Um, and the same thing, when you look at the, um, uh, the Japanese, um, you know, reimbursement system, right. The, you know, the MHLA. Um, but it, uh, when you, you mentioned, you know, the, some of these different technologies, I mean, I, I look, I totally, agree that you know the we haven't had a problem though when you look at some of these crowded therapies so look at you know the dlbcl backdrop i mean they're really i haven't heard of a lot of challenges getting access whether you're bristol or um you know or um you know, gilead right so that that's the there is some differentiation when you look at you know the attitudes right towards um next-gen therapies versus, you know, versus first-gen. So, Brianzi versus YesCarta. Um, I think that's mostly due to, you know, the positioning. The data support, you know, it's slightly better, you know, um, risk-benefit profile, slightly more favorable safety profile versus the latter. Um, but I haven't heard of, of payers, you know, commercial payers or, or CMS saying, like, no, we want to see evidence of that. I think it's just, Um, that's working itself out in the marketplace. And that's probably how it's going to play out with the, you know, dozens of of CD19 and BCMA therapies out there um, is that, you know, the market will ultimately, in the U.S. at least, the market will kind of dictate who gets what. But I think you'll have kind of a base level of reimbursement and, and we'll have to figure out, like, the share among the different players.
0: Um. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, you know, Padufa 7 is, is currently being negotiated. Any thoughts or insight on that? Is Do you have a view, just as we think about from a regulatory standpoint, the sort of next, what is it, it covers to 27, 2023, I think to 2027 or 2022 to 2027. Um, any thoughts on it?
1: No, um, I think that, I mean, it, it seems, you know, I, I think it, there's just momentum, I think, in getting, you know, Getting it done, and the, the FDA overall, I would say, hasn't hasn't necessarily been a bottleneck. I mean, yes, we've had um, for some of these technologies, you know, we've had natural, um, you know, sort of fits and starts, right? I mean, you have a lot of clinical holds, um, you know, you have we have had some CRLs, but I wouldn't call the regulatory backdrop in the U.S. at least to be in a period of. Of real uncertainty. I mean, we have, we now have leadership. We had uh, very recently, um, I hosted a, a few panels, um, at the uh, World Medical Innovation Forum in Boston, um, part of, uh, Mass General. And we had Peter Marks, um, you know, from the FDA there. And, and he seemed to be, you know, really optimistic about, you know, ultimately, you know, um, Pidupa seven and getting access, getting, getting the funding. And then down the road, more importantly, is is getting a, a steady stream of, you know, regulatory benchmarks to start to see um, approvals of some of these therapies. But, you know, he didn't indicate at all that there was broad uncertainty or hesitation for some of these pioneer or sort of leading edge technologies.
0: Yeah, the, it certainly seems that the FDA has been more over, you know, and I've been doing what, covering for over 25 years now, like you, you, we're at a point where the FDA really seems like they've made that transition, not just recently. I mean, they've been making that transition consistently over probably the last five to 10 years to actually start to embrace novel approaches and try to work with the industry to figure out what are the right metrics um, to develop these drugs and get the right preclinical data to support moving into the clinic. So it is good to see that. I still think that we, you know, we have a ways to go both in our I and enabling packages, um, in addition to speed, from a clinical standpoint, to get the data uh, through and patient characterization to be effective here. I, I you know, I keep coming back to it. Look at Ionc, you know, as you think about the run of those clinical trials, and for smaller biotechs, how challenging it actually is to be able to go in and identify what is the most appropriate patient population for you to develop your drug, actually, in and get your ultimate initial approval uh, around. Um, so it seems like we need to be a little smarter on that
1: yeah i totally agree i would say um you know i, I always say this ness but like the the ultimate sort of trial you know is a you know is a pivotal call it a phase 2 or phase 3 that is a you know head to head right and no no drug company i mean there there's no incentive in running head to head versus a a broad standard of care in some of these you know tougher indications but like that would be that would solve for, you know, the commercial, you know, kind of implications um, as well as the regulatory. I mean, you'd have a, a real a real world benchmark, right, to look at true risk benefit and similar populations. But um, that just doesn't get done, right? I mean, people have been talking about, you know, why don't we do a, just a Keytruda versus Optivo head-to-head and, you know, best of luck, right? Um <laughs> thousands of trials done in IO, for example, that, you know, that, you know, that you can infer differential safety or efficacy. um, But, you know, it's just, there's no incentive for companies to do that. But that is obviously the FDA, like that would be a gold standard. And that would be something that would be, um, I just, I think you have to maybe incentivize companies to, to do that.
0: Yes, well, I mean, access to drug to even do the comparative studies is, it can be really challenging, never mind the cost associated with that. But you're right. You know, we need to, the adaptive design process, I think also is very helpful here to allow us to be able to start to adapt our studies as that data is kind of flowing in. Is there a role for, you know, I I, uh, I did a, I had a conversation with um, around AI and the role of AI now in drug discovery development, and we're certainly starting to see a shift into the util- into the the utilization, and I think we're still waiting to see the real data play out from, but the utilization of those data sets to kind of inform us um are you starting to see that permeate uh, through the companies you're talking to and investors' awareness, or is this still something that you're keeping an eye on, but frankly the the court is still out on it
1: I think it's the latter we're, we're definitely keeping an eye on i mean I've I've known the uh, um, Bio excel guys for years um and uh, and Greg Harrison is the lead analyst on that one, but um, I, I follow it as well. But you know they that's at their core, right? I mean they're looking at AI as a as a platform to, you know, more or less discover drugs that have been you know maybe cast away. But the AI implementation in terms of you know how do you improve or optimize either the probability of success or the risk benefit profile we're just not there yet. Um, But it's definitely one tool to use. Um, I mean, I'd say it kind of reminds me going way back, right? When and you remember this, like when diagnostics played a bigger role, right? I mean, it used to be that you'd have in phase two or phase three, a surprise cardiac or liver signal, and that Mm -hmm. would be the end of the program. And that would, but that would be a surprise. And now you, now you have such good biomarkers and such good, Preclinical analytics that you can, you know, vet that out pretty early um, and, and kill programs to have any sort of signal there, um, and so AI and then that's why the probability of success I think is is you know a lot higher today because you have less less uh, runway for surprises, although you still get some. Uh, but AI is kind of kind of reminds me of that. We're we're not there yet in terms of seeing, you know, how do you enhance uh, a drug profile, but. I mean, no doubt about it it's justified in being you know rolled out uh
0: yes, I think that and this is a data play i mean this is this feels like it's a time event more than anything else you know as we look at groups like velo um you know we got Atomwise, wise deep genomics, there's a whole host obviously of them um recursion and the data that they've put out it's just suddenly if it certainly feels like we're well on the path here, but um there's a little bit more time or um more data that needs to play out uh, around it. But we are seeing it certainly being integrated far more into companies, even at the out uh, the the, uh, the outset of the formation of these companies. Um, so I remember years ago, and I don't know if it was an open letter or whether it was an actual research piece, but you were very vocal about how you felt a company needed to sort themselves out and kind of move forward from the quagmire that they were they were cut in. I remember reading it and thinking to myself, that, that's a pretty brave thing for somebody to actually do, right? Um, and, and ultimately, you were right. It wasn't a question about were you right or not, but it was such an unusual thing to see somebody take such a strong stance and actually be very open about it. Um, I don't want to revisit it. I'm sure you remember the one I'm talking about. Uh, I think there was only one, but I don't want to revisit that. But I actually would ask you, if you were to write an equivalent thing today, Um, in advice to biotechs that may have a year of cash left um, or as they look at catalysts within their pipeline that frankly, you know, it's, it is really the the barren desert for the next 12 to 18 months. What would you tell them?
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, I, you know, that's not a, as, as, Looked favorably at at B of A. They're they're not such a fan of of us telling companies uh, what to do. But when I was at Barclays, yeah, we wrote a Dear Board Deer Management letter. Um, at uh, let's see, it was for you know Gilead, Biogen, Alexa. there's a number of them. Right. Um, and it, you're right. It was really unusual. Um, <laughs> it's funny. We get sort of readership statistics, and I had more people read the uh, our 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 activist letter, if you want to call it that, for Gilead then had read our, you know, I mean, it was like 10 X in 24 hours than like our best piece that year. <laughs> so and that doesn't
0: include the number of times it was, it was forwarded. Like, I will tell you, I right. forwarded those on to, I don't know, 20 people. Right. Saying you yeah. got to read this.
1: Yeah. I, I would say for, it's, it's easier to do that for a, a bigger company um, and it's just because there there's stuff to me that just looks obvious you know, strategically, right? So when when stocks are in the doghouse and haven't performed for you know three, four, five years, and companies keep doing the same thing, um, I mean I, that was the impetus for it. I mean it's funny I me mean, the, the, those activist letters literally took me about two hours to write. Like it just kind of flowed, you know, because it was just it's it's it, it's so clear what a company needs to do. But I get it though. I mean sometimes it's hard to pull it off in a larger bureaucracy, right? And there there are a lot more things in play uh than, than probably I see as an outsider looking in. Um but it, it but you know ultimately for a bigger company, you know, it's it's just to take you know to take risks, maybe add a you know, add a therapeutic category that helps diversify or um, if you've tried a number of indications that ha- haven't worked, like for example, you know, for you know, the one that we wrote years ago for Gilead is, was to say, look, they've been tra- targeting Nash and Hep B for many, many years unsuccessfully, like just kill it, you know? And it's easier for you to say that than do it because that's a lot of employees, right? And that's nice. also, um, you know, like, a, like morale would be, you know, would, would not be ideal there, but you know, it's to say, you know, why don't you kill it and then wait until something is fully de-risked and then and then pay up for it. You know, and that is kind of, that was kind of the strategy that they implemented for, you know, for pharma set years ago. Um it's harder to 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 save to to, to delineate what a smith cap needs to do. I mean, I would say in general though, just know that, you know, what anchor's valuation by far and away for me as a sell fighter um is you know is human clinical data right that's going to that's going to de-risk the the approval that's going to de-risk the commercial and so put a, a there's a lot of resources that goes in that go into that you Ness, as as a guy who's spent a lot of time in the private world like you know management is really important to you and and to um you know and to be able to the ability to execute on something like that right but you know and and it is to me too but but I would say, you know, make that the number one priority. Like how, like, how do we get what's the perfect profile? And then let's backtrack. How do we allocate capital? How do we design? How do we optimize our technology to get the best, you know, data? Um, and, and ultimately, that is what, that's what sells, right? From a, from a commercial standpoint, and that's what anchors valuation. Does that make sense?
0: It does. I think where, I'll tell you, the, the, the board meetings and the interaction with management teams that I've had where that's the theme that they keep bringing up is get into the clinic, get the human clinical data, there's almost this fire that gets lit underneath them that they want to rush then into the clinic, right? Nominate their DC, get their IND enabling package, get into the clinic versus spending the additional six months to a year to really validate what they actually have. And that the, whatever they're nominating as a DC actually is appropriate. Um, so, you know, because when you're back to, and you know this as well, that that can blow up in your face. You get into the clinic, you get the human clinical data, and one of, th- one of three things can happen. Either data looks really good or you're not quite sure what it's telling you, but it's not negative. You're getting negative data that really just sends you all the way back again. And now all you've done is serve to... Um, raise additional questions about your platform or your comp- the basis of your company, or which I think is actually a theme we're going to see more and more, is the DC criteria that you set and what you actually started to move that program forward with, a competing company suddenly comes out with data that changes your target product profile that drove that uh, election of your DC. So, you know, we talked a little bit right about all of the companies that are chasing the same indications, there's a net negative impact from that above and beyond just how do you differentiate yourself to the fact that actually that TPP that you're aiming your drug now against actually can materially change during the actual development process um, you know, for you as a company. And, and I I worry about that a lot. You know, It's when I feel like we're constantly looking over our shoulder and trying to determine is the drug that we want to advance, is it going to be competitive or is somebody else going to actually publish data that's going to actually Materially move the needle as to what actually is going to be effective, and I think you know Alpha One and Hibrix data it somewhat you know starts to actually lay lay some questions around whether we'll see that for Alpha One as an example.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I mean, I think the the answer is probably somewhere you know between you know um, having backups and having kind of a second and third compound. But it's tough though for an early stage company to come up with you know one human clinical result, you know, or, or lead candidate, much less two or three. Right. So, um, but you're right. I mean, there's a lot of effort that goes into that first one Uh, time is of the essence, but I I would say, um, you know, stay in stealth mode as long as possible. Right. So, um, you know, look, and, but you you also don't have a lot of, and my my outside looking in, of course, but my recognition for a lot of the, you know, the early stage companies that, that we talk to, um, I don't know if they're as aware, right, of the competitive landscape. I don't know if they have a strategy person or a, a diligence person that um, that knows the landscape and goes to all these conferences and to look at preclinical data and to assess the landscaping. That that reduces the risk of being surprised on the on the negative side. But um, it is funny. I mean, we keep mentioning you know c nineteen and BCMA. I mean, I've done so many you know, vetting calls with companies and I'm like, you know, you're the third one today targeting these cases. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, if you don't, if you don't know that, like, then there's a problem.
0: <laughs> yes. This is like the old combinatorial chemistry, monoclonal antibodies, you know, fab domains. It was like, you're right. In one day you might see five companies, um, and it's it's like, well, what what ultimately what is the difference between all of you? And how do we think about if we want to make an investment? How do we actually place that? But it does for you though, you know, you are a cost center in a bank, right? So you cost the bank money. Um, you know, they're they're not going to give you resources. This is general comment, not specifically to, to BOA, right? Um, they're not going to give you unlimited amounts of capital right, to run your team and to effectively give you the broadest um, ability to cover, um, you know, what's happening and evolving in the biotech um, arena. Given just the sheer volume of companies that went public over the last two years, how, how the hell do you keep track of it all? How do you decide which ones ultimately you are going to be able to spend the time on? And are we getting to a point now for, 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 for in the equity research field overall that you know either you're going to have to be really deliberate and limit the number or the the, the the number of companies that you cover, or is there some other mechanism that we're going to see start to come out to allow the actual oversight of just the breadth uh, of these companies that you guys are expected to cover
1: well i was, I will say this i mean the, I, I starting go, go, going back many years when i when I left uh, j p Morgan in 2014 for for Barclays, it was to cover biotech and also major pharma directly, and I had indirectly followed, you know, pharma, and that I continued that at B of A. So really, it's it's been a it's been eight years that I've covered uh, everything therapeutic-wise from you know from big cap you know biotech and down to the Smiths and adding major pharma. So it's nice actually. What I like about it is I have sort of one model that that can incorporate it you have to get to a de-risking level to where you throw it in the model, but one market model that can incorporate, you know, dozens of products, right? And so that that's kind of the fallacy of the sell side to some degree. I mean, if you add up what are the peak sales for every individual drug for one indication, like, you know, a tiny indication is like $20 billion. It doesn't make any sense, right? But to have sort of one-stop shop to be able to incorporate everything, you can then start to look at share and differentiation. Um, and, and b of a um has been you know very um uh they they've been v- very kind and they they've they've given me a lot of resources i have six uh associates on the team and a couple of folks have spun out to become their own senior analysts um with you know with their own coverage um so we have a lot of breadth um at the firm but the screen i would i would look to for You know, what does it take organically to, you know, to follow a company? Um, It's a tough question. I mean, I I think overall um, we'd be looking for something that's you know, that's disruptive, that there's a lot of investor appetite, there's a lot of interest, and something that could be, you know, potentially, um, you know, intensely competitive with something that, you know, that that we follow, right? But um, but I think to me, though, I, I look for more of the, you know, very disruptive indications or indications that we've had you know very little progress in so you know Alzheimer's right is something that you know for more than three decades right I mean we really haven't had you know a lot that that is you know ultimately you know a, a product for the masses um, and just recently um, Lily's data and obesity I mean we've been talking about obesity for the same amount of time like decades and decades about you know what if right this indication um, or to play out. And so it's, you know, it's, it's big dollar indications that, you know, um, that to me are, are really attractive in solving true unmet needs, right. Not like, you know, fifth line, uh, uh, indication where, you know, a couple of drugs have failed and you can call that an unmet need, but it's a very narrow population, like an unmet need for the mass masses is really something that I find, you know, academically, very, very interesting.
0: Well, that's the, you know, when we look at lifespan here in the U.S., I think one of the very sobering facts is that lifespan is decreasing. So I think this is the second year in a row now that we've actually seen that in COVID. It does not account for that. Um, So we have all of these great drugs, understanding of biology, but to your point about obesity is a great example, you know, metabolic disease, cardiovascular we still are in a situation whereby these are massive unmet medical needs that now is actually driving a shorter lifespan uh, for the U.S. population and including, obviously, the inequities when we think about the overall healthcare system that's in place and how best to actually bridge it. So there's certainly a lot of questions as to how do we, how do we actually maximize the net benefit um, across, the, the, across the world, really, uh, for the actual drugs and the understandings that we're generating. Last question for you. A lot of discussion in today's market about consolidation, right? So M&A, somebody comes in, picks the company up, incorporates it in, off you go. But on the consolidation side, you know, is it? are there cases where it's one plus one equals four equals three? Um, you, I think what, this is your third or fourth fourth cycle now that you've been through. We've never really seen that happen historically. Do you think it's going to happen now? And if you believe it will happen why if you don't what do you think will inhibit it or prevent it from taking place
1: yeah i, I think uh, my suspicion is that you know we 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 are unlikely to see it happen in in a very robust way today consolidation and everyone because on down cycles you know valuation is you know is more compelling but you have you know Investors and management teams and boards that are, are not willing sellers, and you know we just had a conversation a few uh, um, uh, a few months ago with a uh, uh, with a venture investor just to get a sense, you know, from from a public market perspective, you know, their portfolio companies, like what what does it take, right? And and usually, I mean, it's a multiple of your you know of a company's prior high, and so I think if you still have kind of the, the, the pipeline being filled by companies being seeded from, you know, from the venture world, and it still looks like, you know, maybe the window is, is closed today, but it opens, you know, at sometime in the near future, um, you're probably not going to have a, a, a backdrop where companies say, okay, I'll, I'll just sell, right? So, um, but I, I definitely, you know, am, am a fan, though, of, you know, of when companies, when they do, in fact, you know, hit the bid, so to speak. Right. I mean, we knew the Celgene guys really well and, and, um, you know, Bristol years ago was very opportunistic in their, in the timing of their deal. Um, but ultimately though, you know, you, you had, you know, you had a, um, a recognition, right. That there are some risks ahead. So I think it's a good thing when you see, when you see consolidation, um, and by the way the backdrop today is that you know a lot of bigger caps have just tons of cash and investors now more than ever really want to see consolidation but ultimately from the seller standpoint from the you know Smith biotech standpoint it, it's hard to, to part with you know the your programs with the culture with you know with with, you know, with everything that's been built um, if you know you're not getting, the price that that you think, and a lot of times, I mean, almost all the time, obviously, you know, the the management teams and boards think it's worth a lot more down the road, you know, than than the than the seller. So maybe we'll see going forward an increased use of you know these CVRs right? Uh, that kind of bridge a bid ask spread, um, and I think that's a, a that's not a bad middle ground to to kind of you know. Um, uh to to really approach um when you have kind of an unwilling unwilling seller but a very willing buyer you know but i i don't know i mean most investors don't don't like those kind of structures, but i think it is helpful to you know to see some some consolidation so net net i i it's probably less likely we're going to see massive consolidation but i think the backdrop today though is better is better than it has been in many years to to, uh uh to see more and more deals get done
0: yeah i think that that's right i think there's always though the concern has the market turned and if it's turned then am i selling at the bottom and if i waited six months it will be very different the the, the value ascribed to it will be very different so certainly there's a cash you know balance sheet function that really is a key component or consideration and all of that also having just been through this um jeff this has been great you know, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you and catch up with you and, and listen to um, your thoughts on the market and just the science that we're actually seeing in the sector. So thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today.
1: Yeah, Ness, thanks a lot. Really, was a lot of fun and look forward to, uh, to listening more of your uh, of your podcast.
0: Well, thank you. Hopefully, I'll convince you to uh, come back on uh, at a later juncture. Thank you. Sure,
1: yep, yeah. thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves.